Love is louder than all the noise is a line that I've been kind of humming to myself for the last week. So good to have uh, myself at a Craig Cardiff concert on Wednesday night. What a good singer-songwriter. Makes you think a lot. and A lot of noise out in the world, and I think it's polluting what we... What we... How do I say this? I think all of us have a screwed-up definition of love, <laughs> if that makes any sense. I know that after walking a thousand kilometers on the Camino de Santiago during a three-month vow of silence that I came to the conclusion that I know very, very little about something that I love. Love. So I've decided to reach out to various love gurus during the month of February. Because it really should be a love month, not a love day. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it should be a love life. <laughs> Look, that's taking it too far, man. Sorry. Way Sorry. too far. That's going to be the title of my book. Love Life? <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to know yeah. anything about that, Tim. Tim Miller, swipe left. <laughs> uh, today's love guru is Reverend Ed Bacon. He's the author of Eight Habits of Love. Open your heart, open your mind. Eight Habits of Love is a spiritual guidebook to living life through love and connection, not fear and isolation. By a respected pastor and a frequent guest on Oprah's Soul Series, Reverend Bacon believes that every person can live a full and creative life if they can learn to move through troubling emotions such as fear, anger, and sadness to find the beloved within themselves. Readers will learn how insecurity can keep us from connecting with others, our loving self, and finding our own peace, joy, and creative power. Eight Habits of Love will show through relatable stories, how to create a full, meaningful life by developing simple habits, uh, stillness, truth, forgiveness, compassion, play, candor, generosity. I don't want to read anymore. I want to talk to to the man himself, Reverend Ed Bacon, on the phone with us. Uh, First of all, do we say Reverend Ed, Reverend Bacon, Reverend Ed Bacon? Do we say Ed? How do people refer to you? Hey, Drew. Um, People refer to me as Ed and Reverend Ed. Okay. And I am very comfortable with any of that. My preference is Ed. We have made the most childish, immature, silly boy bacon jokes the entire show today. (laughs) Welcome to my life. (laughs) (laughs) I said that last time we made one. I said, he's heard all these. Like, he knows them all. I love bacon, so he knows. Like, the first thing we said was, imagine if you were a rabbi. Like, that's hilarious, you know? (laughs) My rabbi friends call me Rabbi Beacon. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> yep. I get it. And my friend Desmond Tutu calls me Kosher Halal Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the first time on our show someone has said, my friend Desmond Tutu. Oh, yeah. Nice. Oh, dear, 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 wonderful human being. Who is, yes. who is the, 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 who has had the biggest spiritual impact on your world, your life? And you can't say Jesus. Thomas, Thomas Merton. Yeah. Uh, great 20th century spiritual theological writer. Uh, Monk uh, killed tragically with an accident with a fan that had a short in it in 1968, December 10, um, in, in Bangkok, Thailand. And uh, I discovered him and immediately was drawn to his distinction between the false self and the true self. And how salvation, he defined as salvation, not as your eternal address in terms of hell versus heaven, but whether or not you had discovered and were on the journey of discovering your true self, 
and had begun a journey of noticing and ceasing to live by the false self and the false self's projects. Thomas Merton has been my um, North Star Hmm. since uh, 1971 when I first met him. I think I first found out about Merton when I first found out about Henry Nowen. <clears throat> oh, really? And yeah, because well, Henry, he was the priest at a church a block from that that the funeral home that That's I grew right. up in. That's right. In, That's right. in That's Richmond right. Hill, Ontario, and then of course <laughs> I found out about the Larsh community and and anyway, yeah. Uh, oh, well, uh, my my book uh, Eight Habits of Love would not have been possible without Henry Nowen's very kind of slim volume, but very profound volume called Life Signs, Mm -hmm. in which he distinguishes between the house of love and the house of fear, and says that that is why we know Jesus had uh, attained divinity, was because he refused to live in the house of fear, and all of the questions that came to him from the house of fear, he never answered them, except from the house of love. And all of a sudden, I had the categories of my life, along with Merton's true self and false self, on which I actually have been hanging all of my theological concepts and all of my work as a pastor and as priest ever since. Wow. Wow. So did you have much of a chance to hang out with Henry? I didn't hang out with him a lot. Every chance I could get to a conference... I would do that. But in terms of our becoming kind of hanging out buddies, that never happened. I, as I understand it, I mean, there was a guy who, who was, he was certainly a tortured soul. And, and the, the prolific aspect of his writing came out of his own personal, uh, yeah, his own personal torture, his, 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 his battles with, with uh, his identity with right. you know his theology and how it intermingles right. but i mean he was a to, to, i remember him being a slight like a, just a smallish slight i just remember him as he i was just a young guy um yeah and he was so eloquent and so profound i'll, I'll I, I always think of his uh of his thumbs because when he lectured and presented and preached he just buried his index finger into his thumbs so that they have these indentations in them. But more importantly, um, I kind of laugh about how you can get distracted, but more importantly, he was a walking wounded healer. Yeah, that's I it. Mean, I think, you know, that was his most important book, and it was about uh, being hospitable to your own woundedness so that other people can come in and find some space yeah. for their woundedness and I love his sentence. When you practice hospitality toward your wounds and other wounds, your wounds become a source of mobilization rather than paralysis. Mm. My God, mm. all of us want that mobilized energy in our lives. That is the secret to being an invigorated human being. And hospitality toward your woundedness and others' woundedness my, that's that's marvelous. I mean, yeah. that's another wow. Yeah, that's, that's gold. Neat. Ed Bacon dot co, not com dot co. dot co is where you want to go uh, to kind of hang out with uh, with Reverend Ed Bacon, uh, author of Eight Habits of Love. Open your heart, open your mind. Um, I think 
a lot of what you talk about and write about has to do with attitudes uh, and and I've been I've had a really really rough year worst year of my life and I've been trying to chase gratitude and it's an elusive little stinker um, it, it may be more so in some people's life than, than others but what I've heard uh, Ed is that if you can grab a hold of gratitude then it's really hi- hard to hang on to the darkness is, 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 no doubt about that um, and and I think the essence of gratitude is trusting that the belovedness of God is resident in absolutely every experience you can possibly have I mean that is why you know uh, Paul says you know give thanks in absolutely everything and when you can stop and practice what I call the habit of stillness and go beneath the choppy surface waters of your ocean, down to the depths of your ocean, that is where you find gratitude and love. Okay, I before I start launching into this, uh, to, to the habits and to romantic love, relational love, mm-hmm. because there's, mm-hmm. you know, obviously there's a... A variety of loves out there, uh, right, right, right. The, the Greek definitions, the eros, the the agape, right. the um, um, all the other ones. <laughs> um, right, right, right. Before we go there, I know very little about your personal life. Forgive my ignorance, mm-hmm. Ed, yeah. but no problem. Um, uh, wh- are you in love? I am indeed. I uh, this past Wednesday on Valentine's Day. Uh, not only celebrated my 70th birthday, but celebrated the 47th anniversary of marriage to this wonderful human being whom I love, and I love to smell, and I love to be around her, and I love to learn from her, named Hope Hendricks Bacon. Hope Bacon. Tim, That you should have named one of your kids that, man. Hope Bacon. <laughs> That's my everyday existence. I just hope for it every day. <laughs> um, okay, so first of all, Happy birthday, 70, uh, well done. A happy anniversary, 40, well done. So you 47. know, 47, sorry. <laughs> Don't know why, I just forgot to write the other number down. Um, so when it comes to love, romantic love, mushy love, Valentine's Day love, partner love, marriage love, I want to talk about the habit of generosity, the habit of stillness, the habit of truth, the habit of candor, the habit of play, the habit of forgiveness, the habit of compassion, and the habit of community. And what I'm hearing in all of this is, is again, a, a common theme of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? It is perfect. It's precise. It's, it's right on target. Um, the, the authentic life is another way of talking about the true life and your true self. And inauthenticity being the projects that you have developed or that have been handed to you or assigned to you in your false self. And, to, and, and, and they will always lead us away from love. They will always lead us away from these eight habits, and there are you know, several other ways to, to talk about those eight habits. But authenticity is at the heart of the matter, yes. It is, it is, finding, it is living your truth, which is the Christ within you. It is the beloved within you. It mm-hmm. is the energy that with with which and by which you were made, which is absolutely pulsing 
inside absolutely every human being, and they can access that energy, that belovedness energy, to the degree that they are able to develop some of these habits. And you can access this energy, and it can make you live an absolutely vital, exhilarating life. Okay. Has your wife, Hope, ever said to you, all right, Mr. Bacon, this whole eight habits of uh, love thing here, might be time for you to start practicing some of these. Absolutely. Absolutely. She, of course, I think this is also a part of the crux of the matter for all relationships that are love-based, is that candor that you've just illustrated. Mm. Um, You know, there have been so many times when she said, uh, how long has it been since you've been on a retreat? Or how long has it been since you've meditated? Or um, why don't you practice some compassion uh, instead of just write about it? Uh, You know, (laughs) all of those things. She's just got a a great BS detector and uh, a lot of courage and a lot of chutzpah. And um, never mentions words. But those first two that you said, why don't you, when was the last time you went on a retreat? When was the last time, what was the other one? Um, you meditated. Yeah. Uh, those kind of things sound like, please go away from me. Um, and and, and yeah. I, jo- I joke about that, but I want to ask you, I want to ask you, well, hold on. Let me say what I want to say, and then we'll, we'll figure out what I want to ask you. What I, what I want right. to say is, I wonder if... Every North American marriage should take at least a month of separation every five years. Not separation and go hook up with other people separation, but just be physically and be apart for an entire month. Because there's something, I think Dawkins uh, has the saying, the anesthetic of familiarity. That is the thing that's killing our marriages. Yes? Absolutely. I I think that's awfully awfully good advice, and I think it, it bears great fruit. I mean, I, uh, we spend time apart uh, in my speaking engagements, uh, also in my taking retreats, and also, thank God, we've got um, this wonderful house where I have a kind of a hideaway study library meditation room uh, from which I'm having a conversation with you. Hmm. The, the, the point, however, and, and, and you began to telegraph this through whom you said, um, doesn't that sound like get away from me? The fact is, it doesn't. It's not. However, if you're in your fear brain instead of your love brain, you can interpret it that way. Hmm. And that's the that's the thing, just to harken back to Henry Nowen's House of Fear and House of Love, if you're living out of the House of Fear then you're going to see everything as fearful and it's going to scare you to take that time you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really believe in giving yourself time out. Um, and uh, just wrote a piece in uh, medium.com about that, which I really heartily recommend to everybody how important it is to give yourself a time out from time to time. However, if you're on the other side of a relationship, where one person is giving himself or herself a, a time out, period, if it begins to feel threatening or this, or you're taking it personally, that is a, that is a real 
big flag right there that you have slipped into the house of fear or the what I call the fear brain. You know, I, and that's when you have to practice one or more of the eight habits of love to get yourself back into the love brain. Yeah. I see a really interesting correlation between, like, if you if one was to uh, pick up one of the amazing Enneagram books out there and then pick right. up the, the eight habits of love and yep. read those simultaneously, I think that would be jaw-dropping. Yeah. I think you're right. You know, I'm, I'm going to have to do that. I haven't studied the Enneagram like I should, and I have a couple of free books in you know, my bedside table to, to do that. But I like the idea of juxtaposing the two books. Okay, let's. I want to do something a little practical so that the folks out there who are listening, all three sure. of them, uh, if they could <laughs> grab on to you know, the handlebars in this conversation and just grab on to something. So let's start with Chapter 1, The Habit of Generosity. Give me an example in a relationship. You know, in a in a you know somebody loves somebody else. Uh, I'm getting to look at it, Tim. Tim and I, we've known each other for 40 years. So we think back of the day when we had really goofy hair. We were at a grade seven dance. We, we were, had hair period. We had hair period. Yeah, and we were you know on the wall at some grade seven dance. <laughs> It, Until Stairway of the Heaven came on, and then that was our opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we are just stupid male, dopey, right. uh, socially awkward. Uh, love dorks is what we are. So, so we need this help. So, when it comes to a relationship, the habit of generosity. Give me a practical example of how to practice the habit of generosity. Maybe something between you and Hope, or maybe just an example that you give to others. A real quick one. Lay it on us. You're talking about relational generosity. Yes. Now. Yeah. Exactly. And so, what you want to do is to make sure that you're passing on in the current relationship the very best that you've ever received from another relationship. Generosity is about affluence, affluary, flow, letting what comes into you that's really good and refreshing and life-giving to let that out rather than holding on to it and using it as a way of stagnating your heart. So relation generosity is, is to be applied in absolutely every part of life, but if you're applying it to a relationship, it is about letting the best that you have ever received from any other relationship pass through you into this relationship. I like that. Okay. All right. Another handlebar, something to grab onto for the habit of stillness within a relationship. In a relationship, stillness is about building an observation deck so that you can go out and look back on yourself. It has other things in it as well. But relationally, you want to make sure that you are practiced, and this is like building a muscle, like going to the gym. You're practiced in, in being able to go out on your observation deck and look at how you and this other person in the relationship are functioning and whether or not it is a functional relationship to the degree that you get triggered and get caught up in some kind of reactivity in the moment, let's say anger or fear or you've hurt my feelings or whatever it could be, you are not observing yourself. So the observation deck that stillness gives you is absolutely crucial. Chapter three, the habit of truth. I actually want to throw out uh, something and get your feedback on this. 
and when it comes to the habit of truth, I often think of uh, couples that are trying, married couples are trying to stay married, they're trying to survive. One of them has maybe wandered a little or done something that it maybe isn't kosher or cool. And my question to you is, is it a carte blanche rule that you should confess everything to your partner? Absolutely not. And you have to always begin what our 12-step brothers and sisters talk about in terms of the third and fourth and fifth steps. You share transparently to the degree it is not going to cause trauma or deep pain. And so you have to be careful about unzipping and sharing everything. Okay. The habit of candor. Um, I'm an Enneagram 4. I'm pretty candid. Um, Authenticity is everything to me. But I know others that have a hard time with my candor. And, and I think, I wonder if how much of the candor thing comes down to speak the truth in love. Candor is always about speaking truth in love. <clears throat> candor also is about making sure that you have in your mind the difference between the being part of a person and the doing part of a person. And that you are being candid about the doing, not the being. Hmm. It's totally illegal to critique or judge someone at the level of being. And it is always fair to to critique or share the impact about choices that people have made in their thinking and their doing. Wait, I I want to actually make sure I've got the right definition of what candor is. What is candor? Is it, as I might say, simply having testicular fortitude? Not always. Having testicular fortitude can translate into bullying. Yes. Candor has, I mean, all of these habits, you know, work together. And so I'm, I'm thinking about compassion right now. You, it, is, it is so crucial to not walk on eggshells in a relationship. Mm so that there's no candor at all. There's no transparency. There's no being frank with one another. And that's where, you know, saying, oh, I'm walking on eggshells here. I've got to stomp on the eggshells. I've really got to make a contribution to the durability and the depth of this relationship. But while I am making or finding the best way to talk about this, I've got to make sure that I am going to critique or share my responses to a choice and an action and a doing part of a person that I'm talking with, Mm -hmm. rather than at the level of their being. This is good stuff, man. uh, My hand's getting tired writing it all down. (laughs) (laughs) He's cramping. Bless you. Uh, the habit of play, is that just like what we all know as, you know, have a date night, be inventive, be spontaneous, be, you know, have some fun. Is it really, is it just as simple as that? No. Oh. It is about having some flexibility in everything that you do rather than being uptight. The image, the metaphor the, that illustrates the word play actually comes from another one of my mentors, Rabbi Ed Friedman, 
who talked about how we people who really are good at fishing, uh, particularly fly fishing, keep a little play in their line. If it's too tight, they're not going to be able to feel what's on the invisible end of the line below the surface of the pond, the lake, the stream. And if it's too lax, then you're still not going to be able to know whether or not you've got a fish on the other line, or the other end of the line. You have to have it a little taut, but with some play in it. Hmm. So that suggests to me that in a relationship, particularly, um, and, and it can be a relationship with yourself, obviously, but in a relationship with somebody else, sometimes I'll just throw out a, a kind of a playful side to see if the person with whom I'm engaging has some play in their line. Yes. And because uptightness <laughs> is not going to work. Nope. And uptightness is a sign of anxiety. Uptightness is a sign of fear. Interestingly enough, laxity, saying whatever about anything that happens, that also is a sign of anxiety. It's so strange about human behavior. Mm. So to have a little bit of tautness, but with sufficient play in there, so you can know and you can feel a change in the temperature in a relationship. Okay, we're just we're just running out of time. This is driving me mental because there's the <laughs> habit of forgiveness, the habit of compassion, the habit of community. So let me just jump to one of these. Let's see, which shall I pick? Mm -hmm. I think I can get a little bit of forgiveness. I know there's more to it. You got to get the book, find out more. The habit mm -hmm. of compassion, I think I get it. Get the book, find out more. But the habit of community when it comes to a relationship, I don't know. There's a part of me that says, I wonder if you're trying to get at you know, it can't. You can't put all of your eggs in one basket. In other words, you can't ex uh, expect your partner to fulfill every desire that you have. And I don't mean, you know, sexually. I mean just community-wise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What I'm what I'm getting there is you cannot be a human being alone, and you have to be a member of a team. And to the degree, say that you are using your intimate relationship as a reflection of who you are and a reflection of your projects rather than making room for that person to have her or his own thoughts and to feed them back to you so that you are enriched by somebody else's difference. Hmm. You are practicing community. So community, interestingly enough, has this interplay with difference. So that you are learning always. In a, I mean, I make the point in the book over and over again is that if you write your autobiography as a as a victim or as a hero, you're not really going to get at your true self. If you write your autobiography as a learner rather than a hero or a victim, then you can be in community and then you can live in the house of love. So good. Yeah, that victim, that, the V word right now is a huge word in my life. Again, yeah. not to keep going on about the Enneagram, but, you know, I, I spent most of my life, I don't, I didn't care what other roles people had in my play as long as I got to play the role of victim. 
Precisely. And 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 I am writing about my journey and my story. And and I I did have a very recent wake up call about am I writing out of the victim mentality? And I've just gone back and changed mm-hmm. a whole bunch of the very fascinating stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, so rich. Ed, you have been so generous with your time, and I know that everybody wants to interview you. For you to say yes to me is an honor. Thank you. EdBacon.co, and a special thanks to our mutual friend Paul Young, who said that I have to have Reverend Ed Bacon on the show. Eight Habits of Love is the book, of course. Open your heart, open your mind, and the website is EdBacon.co, not com, .co. Follow him. I mean, just in a weird stalker way. Follow him. Do it. <laughs> that's that's so the number nine love thing, yeah, right? yeah, the, stalking. Yeah. Thank you, Ed. I really appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. It's been a great pleasure. Thank Bye-bye. you. Reverend Ed Bacon on the Drew Marshall Show. So good. All right. Just-